Good morning. Oh, look at everybody over there. Welcome. I'm so glad you all are here today. And I'm so glad I'm here and get to be with you. This is wonderful. What a great place. It is warm in here. It is dry in here. And with your smiling faces out there, I see lots of sunshine in here. So this is where I want to be. I can't think of any place better. Welcome. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm so glad to be um, a part of this Bible study. And I think that this is a great way to start off the year, studying God's Word. And we're going to start this new year with um, a 16-week study, and it's called You've Got Mail, Real-Life Encouragement from Paul and Peter. We're going to be looking at Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at Peter's letters to the Christians in Asia Minor. Now, you might recognize this title, You've Got Mail, from the movie um, that came out years ago that starred Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, and it was a love story. Ladies, these letters are a love story as well. It's God's love story to us through these letters. We're going to see in 1 Thessalonians Paul's love for the Thessalonians. It's an amazing love that comes from God's love for the Thessalonians. And it goes on down through the ages until we are recipients of that love as we read this letter to the Thessalonians. It is, we are included in that love from God. Uh, we are going to have Lynn Kitchens and Shelley Davis also um, being on the teaching team this semester. And when we thought of this title, You've Got Mail, we were thinking of all the communication that goes out today through email. Now, I would like to think of myself as, um, you know, keeping up with the times, trendy, cutting edge. Um, hey, nobody's laughing. That's good. <laughs> because those of you that know me know I am not trendy and I am not cutting edge and I'm not really a techno person. And I have gone for over a month without reading my email. In fact, in fact, my New Year's resolution was to read my email every other day. Now, I've broken that resolution, but I am getting um, much better at reading it just in time for my daughter to inform me, Mom, email is on its way out. She has a ministry um, working with high school kids. Uh, It's a Young Life ministry uh, north of Houston. And she says, if I want to contact them, they don't look at email either. They are looking at their text messages on their phone. Or if you have something really big that you want to say to them, then you put it on your Facebook. And so I shook my head because she knows I don't have, I don't text. I don't even have minutes on my phone to text. And I'm not on Facebook. So here I am just trying to read my email every other day. But we all understand communication changes over time. It may change, but we still understand letters of love and encouragement. We understand that. No matter how they come to us, whether we think about them as parchment written uh, hundreds of years ago, whether they come to us through our postal system today, or whether they're letters of encouragement that come on our computers through email, or maybe through text messages on our phone, we understand and we love those letters of love and encouragement. Now, if you're like me, 
You may have saved some letters like that over the past. I'm a words person. I love that kind of stuff. My husband wrote me 11 love letters one summer when we were dating, and I still have them, all 11 of them. And um, I wrote him 33, so it wasn't quite. um, um, But, I mean, for him, 11, you know, I'm glad I have those 11 letters. And I've also, over the years, saved letters from my my mom, from friends um, and family that have sent me encouraging notes that love me. I've saved some of those. And so I think that if you're like me, you are going to love this semester as we look at these letters and as we see the, this encouragement that we see in the mail that we're going to get from Paul and Peter. So how many of you were here last semester when we studied Psalms? How many of you? Good. Okay. I love that you came back. That's wonderful. How many of you are brand new today? This is your first time at Women in the Word. Welcome. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. And Anna, I can't say what a thrill it is for me um, to have you here. What a joy you have been in my life and how fun to have you here at our Bible study. Um, instead, speaking English instead of Swahili over in Tanzania. So it's great. Thank you for being here. Thank you, all of you newcomers. I want to say please come back. Hang in here with us all semester because God is going to bless your life through studying his word. I can testify to the power and the faithfulness of God's word because um, the last two weeks I have really needed God's word. I didn't know last semester when I was studying Psalms 86 um, how that is a psalm for the poor and needy, just how much I was going to need that psalm these last two weeks. But I did need that psalm. And I can tell you that his word is powerful and faithful. God is good. And God is great, and he's going to bless you this semester as you study his word. So with that in mind, let me encourage you to do your homework questions. Now, um, we give you this homework so that you have the opportunity to study God's word on your own. And then come back with the insights that you received and share them with your small group and listen as the other women share with you. Now, um, sometimes uh, these... Questions may seem long or hard, so it's really best that if you give yourself plenty of time, so if you could do a few every day, that would be optimum. That way you can contemplate on it, you can meditate on it, you can have spend plenty of time on it. But if all you have is 30 minutes on Wednesday night, then that's great. Then do that. And if you have a really rough week and you can't study the questions at all, Come anyway to Bible study. We're not going to check and see if you've done your homework. We're not going to give you a grade. Um, It's for your benefit that we give you these questions and we ask you to do your homework. But please, come on, regardless of how much you have done. I also want to encourage you to hang in here all semester. Even if it seems difficult, even if you feel a little discouraged, hang in there. Um, Because we are all on a journey to draw close to God to become more and more like Christ. And we're all in different places on this journey. Some of you come today and you have studied God's word for years and years and years. Some of you come today and this may be the very first Bible study that you've ever been in. That's okay because God's word speaks to each of us no matter where we are on this journey. God's word speaks to us. God gives us insights. And we will grow and change, excuse me, as we study his word. 
So as I was praying for you all and, and thinking of how to encourage you and, and wanting no one to be discouraged um, with this study on Thessalonians, I came across, December 27th, a cartoon uh, in Peanuts. And it's on the back of your verse sheet. I hope everybody has an outline and a verse sheet. <clears throat> and on the back is this cartoon. And you can follow along as I read it. I thought it really spoke to this issue. Lucy says, this is show and tell day at school, isn't it? Rats, I forgot to bring something. Did you remember that this was show and tell day, Linus? Yes, I have a couple of things here to show the class. These are copies I've been making of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, this is a duplicate of a scroll of Isaiah chapters 38 to 40. It was made from 17 pieces of sheepskin and was found in a cave by a shepherd. Here I've made a copy of the earliest known fragment ever found. It's a portion of 1 Samuel 23, 9-16. I'll try to explain to the class how these manuscripts have influenced modern scholars. Lucy's looking there. Very interesting. I thought it might be at least faintly appropriate to the season. Are you bringing something for show and tell, Charlie Brown? And look at Charlie Brown's face. Well... I had a little red fire engine here, but I think maybe I'll just forget it. (laughs) Okay, guys, if you feel like all you're bringing to small group is a little red fire engine and everybody else at your table has the Dead Sea Scrolls in their backpack, I want to encourage you to bring that little red fire engine because we can never discount God's revelation to each of us. And the insight that God has given you When you share it with your group, someone in that group, that might be the most important thing they hear all day. More important than what their small group leader says. Much more important to what I have to say up here. That could be the most important thing. So please, come on. Bring your little red fire engine. It's going to be um, wonderful. Come on to Bible study and share with us. So with all that said, let's turn now to um, Acts 17. I'm hoping that in your group you marked 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be studying that in a minute. But I wanted to give a little background uh, to uh, this book of Thessalonians, and we find it in uh, Acts 17. So let's turn to Acts 17. And while you're turning there, um, let me just give a little quick Uh, review, sort of, of the New Testament to this point. The New Testament opens up with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell us of Jesus coming to earth. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, comes to earth, fully man. And that's what we've just celebrated in Christmas. And Jesus came to to reveal the Father God. And also to die on the cross to shed his blood as an atonement for our sin and to be resurrected so that um, we can have eternal life. His atonement reconciles us to a holy God so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we can have this eternal life with him. Next is the book of Acts, and that gives us a history after Jesus' death and resurrection of what happened, how the Holy Spirit used the disciples to go out and tell others this good news of Jesus. They went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 9, Paul comes on the scene in a really big way. Paul was a devout Jew who was not a believer and was persecuting the Christians. And on his way to Damascus, we read how he encounters Jesus through a voice and through a bright light. And Paul's life is forever changed. He believes in Jesus, he becomes a follower of Jesus, and he becomes the great evangelist to the Gentiles. 
Paul made three missionary journeys, and it's on his second missionary journey that he comes to the city of Thessalonica. And that is where we're going to um, start when we um, begin reading here in a second. Now, Thessalonica was a major city in Macedonia, which is present-day Greece. It was the capital, and it was a very wealthy city and very populated. Probably there were 200,000 people in Thessalonica in Paul's day. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of these ancient cities, I picture like 200 people. 200,000 people. When I read that, I thought, that is amazing. And there were a couple reasons why it was such a wealthy, prosperous, very populated city. The first reason was because it had a natural harbor that was the best in the entire Aegean Sea. And the picture you see up there is present-day Thessalonica. Excuse me, I've got something in my throat. It's called Seleniki, and you see that great harbor. It's a great, Thessalonica was a great harbor city. I also, by the way, have a map on your verse sheet there, and so you can see where Thessalonica is. You can see where it's there in the Aegean Sea. There's a star. Um, I love maps. I just want to say, um, as an aside, I picked this map because it had all these cities on it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always reading the Bible, and I'm thinking, where is that city? Okay, here you go. This map has a bunch of cities for you. So free of charge, you can stick it in your Bible, and if one comes up, you may be able to find it on this map. But... For right now, we're looking at Thessalonica, and you see that it is there as a harbor, harbor town. The second reason that it was very um, a great city was because it was on the Via Ignatia, and that was the great east-west highway that connected Rome to Asia Minor, and that highway went through Thessalonica. So many people were traveling there. We also have a picture of, um, this is present day Thessalonica, but we also have a picture of some ruins that we saw. They have excavated and found ruins of the city of Thessalonica. And I think that is so neat to think um, they have actually found some of these places that we're going to be talking about and reading in uh, Thessalonica. So two reasons why it was great. It was in a harbor city, it was on a great major highway, and it was a prosperous commercial city. There were many Jews there that had businesses that were well-established and prosperous, and we know that because there is a synagogue there. And these Jews would have come during the uh, different times when Jews were displaced from Israel, going way back to the um, Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Also in this big urban city of Thessalonica, there were many different religions. Not only these God-fearing Jews, but there were also people that worshipped Greek and Roman gods like Dionysius and Zeus and Aphrodite. And there also were Egyptian gods that were worshipped there. So there were many different religions. And into this large, wealthy, diverse city comes Paul and his traveling companions, Timothy and Silas. So let's read Acts 17, starting with verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, something like that, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. 
Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So we see here that Paul, Timothy, and Silas have left Philippi. That's in chapter 16, and you can see on your map where Philippi is. And they go through, um, I think Apollonia is the city that's on there, and you see going through that, and they go to Thessalonica, this big... um, prosperous, wealthy city filled with people, and they go straight to the synagogue, and there Paul begins teaching uh, the people. And all they have back then is the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament. It hasn't been written and put together yet. They have the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about the coming Messiah. And so Paul begins to reason with them and teach them and say, Jesus, this Jesus that just came and died and and was raised again, he is this Messiah in the Old Testament. Now it says some of the Jews believed. Some of the Jews believed in Jesus, but not um, all of them. But it says a large number of the Greeks believed. They heard this. Um, some of them might have already begun to believe in the one and true God of the um, Jews but, and now accept Jesus as the Messiah. Some of them may have not heard any of this. And they come along and they believe in this good news, um, this story about Jesus Christ. But some of the Jews were jealous. Some of those that did not believe began to cause trouble. So we read in verse 5, They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers, brothers here means fellow Christians, before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So Jason and these other Christians, these are uh, Thessalonians. These are people that that live there, that have come to believe uh, Paul's message. And they're probably wealthy and have given hospitality to Paul and Timothy and Silas. And so they get out after they post bond, and under the cover of night, it tells us in verse 10, that the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, and Timothy would be with them as well. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and once again, um, Paul begins to teach them. And it says in verse 11, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching in Berea, which is a city about 50 miles south and west, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, that's farther down south, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So you see these rabble-rousers, these troublemaking Jews that do not believe, have followed them, and they're still causing trouble. They're still persecuting them and making their life difficult. And when um, Silas and Timothy come to Paul in Athens, 
This is when Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage the believers there. Paul's worried about them. They've left um, quickly and under the cover of night. And time has passed, and he's wondering how these new baby Christians, how their faith is holding up. So they send, he sends Timothy back to them. When Timothy comes back with a report to Paul, Paul is now in Corinth. Paul writes this first letter to the Thessalonians. And what he writes to them is what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. So with all that said, let's turn now. I hope you have it marked. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians to encourage them. Now, you might find other theologians giving many reasons why he wrote um, Thessalonians. There's many themes to it. But for me, the overall reason is encouragement. Everything you read in 1 Thessalonians is encouraging. Even the instruction he gives them, he does in a way that is encouraging to the Thessalonians. And I think we, too, as believers today, can be encouraged as we read this letter from Paul. Now, Thessalonians, I think all of you probably have it. It's about two-thirds the way back. It's after Colossians, and it's before 1 Timothy. Um, It's five chapters. It's not a real big letter. Um, And we're going to start reading uh, chapter 1, and we're going to go through those ten verses in the time that we have left this morning. So let's let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now this salutation of Paul's is an opening salutation that was typical of letters of that time period. You would begin with who was writing the letter, in this case, Paul. And with him are Silas and Timothy. Next you would put who the letter is written to. In this case, to the church of the Thessalonians. So he's writing to those Christians in Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for us, that doesn't sound odd because we're used to that. But to them, to the Jews especially, that would be amazing. That he is linking God the Father with Jesus. This, this equality, this deity for them both. That would be an amazing thing to see them linked together. And you see Paul exalting Jesus to holding him in, on a very high level because he uses the words Lord Jesus Christ. Now Lord means um, deity. It means uh, sovereign. Jesus, we know that name, is um, Savior, that um, he saves us, is the name of Jesus. And then Christ, that was the Greek word for Messiah. It meant anointed one. It was uh, the Savior. So it would be like saying, Lord Jesus Christ, God, our promised Savior. And then he gives them this greeting, grace and peace. Now, in the Greek letters, they would have said the word greetings. And I love this because Paul takes that word greetings and his greeting is kind of customized. And you see it in all of his letters. And I've put it on your outline there. Um, The Greek word for greetings is karion. The Greek word for grace is charis. Okay, now if any... 
of you are Greek scholars out there. Obviously, I am not one. And so I am not pronouncing these words exactly right. Please forgive me, but it is so exciting to me to see this Greek. I hope it doesn't seem like the Dead Sea Scrolls to you, but for me, it's like a little red fire engine. It's so exciting to see these Greek words and what they mean. He takes that Greek word, karian, that means greetings, and he replaces it with that Greek word, grace, which sounds like it, charis. And then he adds peace. Now, most of you um, have heard of the word shalom. That is the Hebrew word for peace. And that was the greeting that the um, Jewish people would give to one another. They would say shalom. And so he takes this um, Greek and Hebrew and he mixes it together. And his greeting is grace and peace. And you see that throughout of all, all of Paul's letters. And he always does it in that order, grace and peace. And I think there's a good reason because first comes grace. First, we need grace. Grace is what deals with our sin, for we are saved by grace through faith. First, we need grace to deal with our sin. Then we can know God's peace. So it's grace and peace. Then in verse 2 we read, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We see that Paul is thanking God for these Thessalonian Christians, and he mentions them always in his prayers. What a great thing to think about. And the rest of these verses here really is kind of his thanksgiving prayer to God. It's what he's thanking God for in the lives of these Thessalonian Christians. And I found it extremely encouraging, and I hope you do as well. The first thing we see there um, is in verse 3 is he says, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that verse because right up front we see that familiar triad of faith and love and hope. These qualities that are so important to us. And we see what come from these qualities in the lives of the Thessalonians. Their work is inspired by faith. And I thought, how do I work? What inspires my work? What inspires your work? Are you working because you are afraid that somebody's going to chastise you or ridicule you or say something to you if you're not working? Or do you work for um, maybe monetary um, reward or maybe from social uh, reward or status? Or are you working strictly out of duty? It's my duty to do this work. Or is your work inspired by faith in God? When we work like that, we're working not for men, but for God, out of love for him. Now, our works do not save us. We already said that. We are saved by grace through faith. But true faith is busy. Now, that's a quote, but I didn't write down who said it. So, anyway, but I liked it. True faith in Jesus is busy. We are working unto the Lord. And on your verse sheet, I've got Colossians 3.23 that says it like this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. The Thessalonians' work was inspired by faith. And their labor was prompted by love. Now the word here, labor, does not, um, it means laborious toil. It does not mean small acts of kindness. Instead, it's unceasing hardship born for love's sake. I read a story about a man. He was staying with a peasant family, and 
while the entire time he was there, this daughter was sewing on this dress, sewing, sewing, tiny stitches, constantly, day and night. And so when he was ready to leave, he looked at the daughter um, and said, are you not tired of that eternal sewing on that dress? And she looked at him, you know what I'm going to say, with stars in her eyes, and she said, oh, no, because this is my wedding dress. That was a labor of love for her. William Barclay says that work done for love always has a glory. The word for love here is um, the Greek word agape. It's agape love, God's love. And it was a new word for them. It was unlike the word for love that they used, eros, which is romantic love. And it has the definition of meaning love of the worthy. It's a love that desires to possess. God's love is the exact opposite of that. It's, he loves us not because we are worthy. He loves us. And it is unselfish love. It's a love that seeks to give. It is agape love that sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. And it's agape love that the Thessalonians labored out of. The third quality Paul mentions here is hope. Now, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not that um, unfounded optimism that some of us talk about. This hope is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is absolute certainty. It is an assured expectation. It is confidence. It's that kind of hope, an expectation that will surely come. And we can endure anything when we have that kind of hope in Christ Now, some of your translations talks about endurance as patience. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here with the Thessalonians. They were um, working and laboring with patient endurance. Now, endurance, sometimes I think, oh, I can endure. But when you use the word patience, that really sounds hard for me because I'm not very patient. Patience can be difficult for us, especially in our society, because we're so fast-paced and everything's moving at the speed of light, it seems like. And so it's almost counter to our culture to be patient. But patient endurance is what we can have when we focus on our hope in Christ. Think about your life, your day-to-day activities, those trials and difficulties You can have patient endurance in the midst of that because of our hope in Jesus Christ. Then in these um, next verses, starting with verse 4, Paul is going to thank God for what he knows to be true about the transformation of the believers in Thessalonica. They believed in the good news of Jesus and they were transformed. Transformation took place. They became a new creation. And we read about that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's on your verse sheet. And it says, Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And this is what um, Jesus is talking about in John 3.3 when it says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know, God's miracles are amazing. When he hears our prayers, when he answers our prayers in in amazing ways, with healing, with um, new jobs, with those new babies that we've desired, 
All that is amazing. But Max Lucado says that nothing compares to when God creates new life. And that's what happens when we believe in Jesus. We become new creations. We have become reconciled with God and we have eternal life. And our hope is in Jesus. So Paul lists what he knows to be true about their transformation as these new creations. And first in verse 4 we read, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He tells them, God has chosen you. God has chosen you. Before you chose him, God chose you. And the word there for chosen in the Greek, and I really don't know how to say this, but it's like ekloge. Ekloge, we get our word election. Our English word comes from that Greek word, and it is election. God has elected you, he tells the Thessalonians. And that that election, and some of you may know that as the doctrine of election, simply put, it means that God chose you first. Before the beginning of creation, God has chosen you, and then you chose him. And as believers sitting here today, you can know God has chosen you. How does that feel to think about that? I don't know about um, some of you. You may be more athletic than I am, but I was always the kid sitting out there, you know, when they picked the kickball team or the softball team or whatever, and I was generally not chosen. I mean, I was just left there and, you know, ran to get on the team at the end. And I can remember those few times when a friend or someone kind would choose me before I was the last one left on the field and how that felt. I mean, do you guys remember? Have you been chosen for something? How does that feel? Ladies. What does it feel like to think you have been chosen by God to be his child, to be in relationship with him, to have eternal life and to go on to glory with him? That's what it feels like to be chosen by God. That's what we can know from this. Paul tells the Thessalonians, God has chosen you. And he goes on in verse 5 to say, Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with the power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction he knows that they were chosen because their gospel their message of good news was just not simply words but it came in power it came in power and it came with the conviction of the holy spirit and their response was a supernatural work of god the holy spirit brought the truth of the gospel home to them Now, ladies, if you're praying for someone right now to become a believer, I want to encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them, that the Holy Spirit would drive home the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to become believers, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we go on in verse 6 to read, You became imitators of us. Now, the end of that verse 5 says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It says that he is grateful and he knows um, the truth of their transformation because they became followers of Jesus, of Paul first and of Jesus. And um, that is because of the way Paul lived among them, the example he was to them. 
Now, this was so important that Paul, next week in chapter 2, Lynn Kitchens will be bringing that lesson, is going to talk all about who he was and how he lived among the Thessalonians. He was an example of how to follow Jesus Christ. So they became imitators of Paul and were also followers of Jesus. Now, we're not called to become imitators of men. We're called to become imitators of Jesus. But oftentimes, especially with the new believer, we might begin by following the example of a mentor or of an older um, believer. Part of that is because when we're young in Christ or sometimes we just don't really fully understand how to follow Jesus, we look at the example of those that have gone before us. It is a high calling. It is a call for us to be Christ-like, to be Christ-like examples to all of those around us. And we can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we cannot take it lightly. Paul didn't take it lightly. We must um, really call on the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us that we might be examples of followers of Jesus Christ. We also see in that verse that the Thessalonians welcomed the word of God with joy. With joy in spite of the difficulty. It wasn't easy to accept the word of God. Sometimes we have it real easy. We, we can accept it without much um, penalty. They were persecuted. They were suffering for this belief. So in spite of all that, they accepted the word of God. They received it with joy. Paul knew that their transformation was true because of this joy. When uh, we have joy in the midst of hard and difficult times, we are an example of God's power and God's grace. It also tells us in verses 7 through 9, let's read those. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. So we see um, here that... The um, Thessalonians, there, after following after Paul and following Christ, that they were, became model Christians. They were an example to all believers everywhere, not only with the words that they spoke, telling others of the good news of Jesus, but also in their deeds, their actions. Their whole life was a witness to Jesus. You know, I had somebody tell me years ago that our lives are witness um, to Jesus. Sometimes they're a good witness and sometimes they're a bad witness. But our lives are a witness to Jesus. The, the example of the Thessalonians was a good witness to Jesus Christ. Everything they said and did witnessed. And the way Paul knows that is because everybody's traveling through Thessalonica on the Ignatia Way. And they're coming through Corinth and Athens. And he hears them talking about the Thessalonians and what they're saying and doing um, in, uh, as they serve God. And I love the last part of that verse 9 because it says they turned to God from idols to serve him. To God from idols. And that is really a definition of repentance. Repent means to turn. We turn to God. We turn away from the idols, those things that we were making more important than God. So first we turn to God 
And as we do, we are turning away from those idols that separate us from him. And they did this, and as they did this, they wanted to serve God. And then in verse 10 we see, And they wanted to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now we see in this verse that Paul has already introduced to them the teaching of the second coming of Christ. This is going to be an important theme in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians as well. It says they wait. And once again, that's a wait. That's expectant with certainty. They're waiting on their hope in Jesus Christ to come back. Jesus who reconciled us to God so that we might have this eternal life. They know that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1 says our hope is in Jesus 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Jesus Christ, our hope. Our hope is in Jesus, and he is our hope. We have salvation and relationship with God in the present, and we can know that we've got eternal life with him in the future. So what does this first chapter mean to you and me as believers today? I think that it can be an encouragement for us as well. There's many reasons. I hope that it encouraged you, but I have three at the bottom of your verse sheet. The first one is, as a believer, you can know God chose you. God chose you. What an encouragement that is. We also can know that the power of the Holy Spirit transforms you. It's his power that transforms us and makes us more like Christ. And we can also know that our hope in Jesus and his return is for you. Our hope is in Jesus. Hebrews 6.19 talks about hope in this way. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I want to close by telling this little story of uh, an anchor. Uh, Many of you know that I grew up in Miami, Florida. My dad had a boat, and sometimes we'd go out fishing. Sometimes we would go to the Bahamas. A few times we went on vacation um, for a week or two into the Bahamas on our boat. So this one time, it was just my family. I was, I think, in college on this trip, and we were in the Exumas, the southern part of the Bahamas, and we had stopped overnight to at this place on our, our, our way. I think we'd kind of run out of time. So we stopped, and it was called Wardrick Wells. There, it was un, uninhabited, but there was this little inlet where we could um, kind of throw our anchor out and stay the night. There wasn't, you know, like a dock or a harbor. So we were just kind of anchored out in this little inlet. And when my um, father threw the anchor out, there was, a, there was a lot of riptide current going through that. In fact, as the boat turned around, you could just see it was almost like we were moving. The waves you know, were coming past us so fast. And my dad made sure, with the help of my brothers, that that anchor was really secure. Because if it wasn't, when we woke up in the morning, we were going to be out in the middle of the ocean. We were going to quickly drift far, far away. So that anchor needed, and who knows what would happen, land up on a reef or something. So you wanted that anchor secure. And, you know, I was young. I totally had faith in my dad. He was a great seaman. I thought, he's got that anchor secure. I'm good to go. We sang hymns that night. It was, I can remember it was pitch black with the stars up above, and I can remember singing Old Rugged Cross and how great that are. It was a great night. I went to bed without a worry in the world. I woke up that next morning. And there was my dad, and he was, it was early, and he was looking out and checking the anchor, and it was a beautiful day, and I said, Daddy, you know, how did you sleep last night? And he said, well, I was up 
pretty much checking on that anchor because I wanted to make sure that it held. And I thought, whoa, you know, thanks. Thanks, Dad. It never really even occurred to me that we could have been drifting out into the middle of the ocean. And I thought about that this morning as I was praying over this lesson. And I thought, you know, our anchor is in Christ Jesus. That anchor represents hope. Oftentimes you'll see an anchor representing hope. Our anchor is in Christ Jesus. It's solid, and he is holding on to us. We don't have to get up in the middle of the night to check and see if that anchor's holding. Jesus is holding on to us. He is our hope, and our hope is in him. Psalm 62.5 says, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a good God you are. Mighty, faithful, loving, generous. Father, you chose us to be yours. That is so wonderful. Father, thank you for this word, for this wonderful letter of encouragement that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And Father, we see and hear those words to us coming from you, those words of love and encouragement. Father, may it stir our hearts to love you more, to turn towards you and love you with all that we are. Father, I thank you for these women here today, and I pray that each one of them would really be able to focus on their hope in you, Lord, our hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you for that hope that we receive as believers. You are mighty. Bless us, Lord. Bless each one and bring us back next week. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.